Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm Mark Locks, and today we will be speaking to Morris Punch about his new book, State Violence, Collusion and the Troubles. This is an excellent book about the government's response to the IRA in Northern Ireland. We've seen a lot of books come out about the actions of the terrorist groups, and this is actually a book about the reaction by government. Morris Punch is very well known in the police corruption studies circles, and not surprisingly, this book is very much about the manner in which the government agencies, policing, intelligence and military agencies uh, act in Northern Ireland in response to the IRA's terrorist attacks. Uh, Morris is not excusing the IRA in any way. This is simply a study of one side of the conflict. It's a very, very interesting book. It's based on a lot of work that's been carried out by government inquiries and uh, I think the full title of the book gives the game away a bit. Uh, it's called State Violence, Collusion and Troubles, Counterinsurgency, Government Deviance and Northern Ireland. I hope you enjoy the interview. Okay, hello and welcome everyone to New Books and Terrorism and Organised Crime. Today we're talking to Professor Morris Punch, who is in Amsterdam today, about his new book, State Violence, Collusion and the Troubles. And uh, welcome, Morris. Thank you for um, participating today. Well, thank you for getting in touch with me, and it's a pleasure to do it for you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, as I said to you just before, uh, we might start the interview with a bit of background of your own personal um, academic history and how you came to write this particular book. Well, I'm I'm obviously British, but I've been living in the Netherlands since 1975, and I had an interest in policing when I came here. started doing police uh, research in Amsterdam and found I was sitting on top of a corruption scandal. And I wrote about that, and it took me into the concept of organizational deviance, that it wasn't the bad apples, it was the bad orchard. And that took me into corporate crime, which I've written about, and uh, particularly work on corruption, uh, organizational deviance in policing. I give seminars to senior police officers to uh, oversight uh, agency. And at one stage, I shifted a little bit of focus from corruption to fatal force and wrote a book on police use of firearms and fatal force. And whilst I was doing that, um, I have a background in Ireland. My parents were Irish. About what happened in Northern Ireland, because the theme in the book on firearms was was known as shoot to kill. Do the police deliberately shoot to kill or not? Which in the British system amounts to murder if you deliberately intend to shoot someone. Uh, And in the conflict in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles, the phrase shoot to kill came up with the idea that police officers and soldiers had deliberately set out to shoot uh, terrorists. And it takes you not only into how police agencies and and, and the army react to uh, violence from insurgents, but somehow 
what is the state involvement in it. So it shifted me, if you like, more from micro, my early micro stuff, more to macro, uh, particularly because I think state crime has become an interest of my colleagues in, in London. Now, I hope that's sufficient. Obviously, it's a, yeah. it's a complex process. Mm. But I think just to focus, I would say what's, what it's really about is somehow in organizations where you would expect accountability in a democratic state, you see that people evade uh, accountability. And in the very serious stuff like counterinsurgency, uh, you see um, a lack of, um, you see a, an effective form of impunity. So I think that once, once you start shifting up the state to the state level, it gets all very murky. Right, right. I mean, a lot of the work I do over here is on a, a lower level of police deviance, but that organisational deviance, the culture of yes. deviance that people can find themselves in quite innocently, uh, where they start to participate, is a quite a fascinating area, and I think yes. understudied, if anything. Um, it might be yes, useful well, at this stage. Sorry, go on. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say it might be useful at this stage um, to give the people who don't know very much about the last 30 or so years of uh, issues in Northern Ireland a, a brief history of what happened and then maybe mention the inquiries that um, have sparked some of your own interest, I think, in this area. Yeah, well, probably some of uh, some of your students uh, and uh, police officers have Irish backgrounds and know a little bit about it and, of course, Keneally has written a very interesting book on the influence of what were known as the wild geese, the, the Irish who emigrated and so on to Australia mm -hmm. and America, the influence they had. So maybe some people know a bit about the background. But in a nutshell, you have uh, Ireland, which was an intrinsic part of the United Kingdom, but the Irish and the English never really got on very well together for all sorts of cultural uh, and religious reasons you get um, a home rule movement in the 19th century for some kind of independence for Ireland, which never actually uh, gets through the statute books. You get um, rebellion in 1916, which fails in Dublin, and it's in the middle of the First World War, so it's not clearly not very popular with the British public. So a great deal of animosity against uh, the Irish. But the failed rebellion, which was put down very savagely with the main leaders being uh, executed, leads to a war of independence uh, in the, um, from 1919, a treaty which ends up, and this is the crucial bit, and I think uh, showing the cynicism of British politicians, with, by dividing the country into the north, where there's a major Protestant majority so what they've done is they've created a, a small state in the north of this very small island. And Northern Ireland is like the population of a small town, like 1.6 million in Great Britain. That's a relative, that would be Greater Manchester. But they've got a rump state which the South never accepted uh, with a great deal of hostility between the two and constant violence, uh, sporadic violence from the South through what's known as the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, an insurgent movement. Now, then you start getting in the 1960s, 
mirrored on the sort of civil rights movements in the United States, um, a shift in Northern Ireland to try and get kind of civil rights, because effectively you've got a one-party Protestant state which discriminates against the uh, Catholic uh, minority population. And unfortunately, the um, police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, predominantly Protestant, the politicians, predominantly Protestant, overreact, and you get a great deal of violence against the uh, protesters against the civil rights marches, peaceful marches. The IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which wasn't ever very effective and very well armed, comes out to protect the, um, the Catholic minority nationalist population you know, who are arguing for civil rights, but behind them also Republicans who would want uh, unification with the South, which is, you know, which is why that's exciting uh, so much for Protestants. In that uh, turmoil, the British government descends, decides to send in uh, troops. The troops arrive, are seen to be impartial initially, but get pulled into reacting to the violence of the IRA, which becomes the so-called provisional IRA, which splits off and becomes the most aggressive, the major opponent. And effectively, you get a, a counterinsurgency war sliding into uh, bombings, shootings, assassinations, abductions. And the key to my book is how does the state respond? And in a nutshell, and we can get into more detail, what you see is you go into counterinsurgency units run by the intelligence services, so outside of standard policing, outside of standard uh, army and, and military uh, functioning. And my argument is that they get into uh, very high-level deviants, effectively assassinating, uh, if you like, to put it very sharply, death squads, um, which is not untypical in counterinsurgency movements uh, or, or campaigns. And the question is, how does the British state end up killing its own citizens in a way which many people would argue is illegal, if not murder? That's the kind of nutshell, really. It's a very different sort of situation. I mean, on its bare face, it's not different to the situation, say, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But when you consider that's actually happening inside the country that's carrying out the counterinsurgency, it sort of slightly changes people's perspective on how they look at the conflict in Northern Ireland. But because it's across the Irish Sea, I think some people still seem to see it as if it's a foreign issue. Yeah, I mean, this is the strange thing. I mean, obviously, uh, Britain has a, uh, a history of colonial wars and having to get out of Cyprus and get out of uh, other, other places uh, following a conflict. But somehow they were always at a distance. And this is just across the Irish Sea. I mean, literally, you know, you, you can hop on a plane, you're in Belfast in an hour. Um, but I think because it was Ireland, because it was on um, uh, a separate piece of territory, it didn't always impact so much in 
Britain, although there were sporadic uh, bombings and, and shootings. Mm. I mean, most of the violence took place in Ireland, Northern Ireland, sometimes Southern Ireland. And so there was some kind of way of, I think, you know, of, I mean, at the time, Britain was, people were having a good time, people were fairly affluent, uh, things were developing. I don't think people wanted to think too much about it. And the amazing thing is that you've got the army, you've got up to like 30,000 security people, the British army with all its kind of units. And in fact, the army, because of the collapse of the Royal Ulster Constabulary uh, in its failure to deal with the, uh, with the early civil rights movement, the army is in charge of public order for about seven years. This is a complete reversal of this is complete reversal of what you normally get in democratic society where mm. the primacy for law enforcement the primacy for violence is the police it's a yes. very unusual situation and you have to understand that this went on for 30 years we're talking about mm. 3,800 deaths we're talking about 40,000 injuries we're talking about shootings bombings assassinations in Northern Ireland in Great Britain and even sometimes on the continent of Europe. Well, it was actually um, someone I went to school with who was the year below me doing law at university who uh, was in, uh, shot by the IRA in, um, was it in the Netherlands or in Belgium? They were on holidays. Yeah, they were. They were oh, yes, of course. I think you're, what you're referring to is an incident where a car with two young men and two young women, and it was yes, a they were backpacking, car with British, yeah. with British plates, who drove into a Dutch town, the two men got out to photograph the historic buildings, like 16th century uh, buildings. A car drew up, two men uh, driven by a woman. Two men jumped out, masked, uh, armed with assault rifles, and they shot both the Australian tourists in the head, and the male tourists in the head at short range, mm. on the assumption they were British soldiers. That's and right. Of course, they weren't. You know, the young men, young men, young, uh, you know, physically active-looking kind of guys, short yeah. hair. Uh, British registration and you know these are the sort of nasty horrible things that happen in these dirty kind of wars mm. and what I'm saying is that the British state I'm not saying that you could really trace you know deliberate accountability at the top but I think what the governments do is that they send out a message of what they would like to happen and lower level units uh, often outside of the accountability structure because what you often see is when these incidents would take place of shootings, that the log, you know, the log for the evening would disappear. People would give false statements. Um, they would say that uh, the people were armed, that they fired first, uh, and oft often there would be uh, the scene of the of the incident would be closed off, so that the pathologist couldn't get in there, the CID couldn't get in there to treat it as a scene of crime. And this is my point effectively what you construct is firstly the opportunity to you know counterattack if you like against the insurgents but then yeah. you cover it with immunity effective immunity yes yeah, so people see there's no consequences for their actions well it, it's not just it's not just that, that there, are, there there were occasionally uh, cases against against um people from the security services, but very, very rarely against the counterinsurgency movement uh, campaign because they can very much cover up uh, their tracks. 
And another part of the of the story about, say, organizational deviance is that these patterns went on for many years. Uh, talking about a bad orchard, uh, the special branch of the RUC, you know, I would argue in the book, was an, a bad orchard for like 40 years. In other words, it can't be the individuals. The people who yes. came into that unit, which was very much counterinsurgency, working with informants, feeding information to the uh, to the counterinsurgency units, which would then carry out the the actions. I mean, they were they were bending the rules for 40 years. Mm. There's absolutely no doubt about it, because there is now a police ombudsman in Northern Ireland, a very effective, one of the most effective. Um, uh, oversight agencies, and they brought out report after report after report showing that some of the patterns of deviance were deeply rooted within, a, say, a 30-year culture. Yeah, yeah. It might be um, worthwhile listing the tremendous number of policing, intelligence, and, and military bodies that were all active in Northern Ireland at the same time. I was quite surprised. It, it, well... Well, I think that uh, in a strange kind of way, you have to realize a little bit of the background that um, the security services were brought up focused on uh, on the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, when the wall went down, when basically you know the Soviet system collapsed, to put it as crudely as possible, a lot of people uh, were looking for something. Um, of course, later you've got the, you know, the, the Muslim jihadist uh, terrorist movement, you've got Iraq and you've got Afghanistan. But in a way, I think Northern Ireland was a sort of playground, if you like, for the security services. I mean, everybody in British intelligence went through Northern Ireland. Uh, so you've got the army, you've got the RUC, you've got MI5, uh, military, uh, um, the, the basic intelligence service, domestic intelligence service, you've got MI6, uh, the external uh, intelligence service. And so, and what you always get, as you perhaps know from, from your work, the more agencies you have, the less co coercion, co uh, cohesion and coordination you get, a great deal of rivalry, a great deal of non-communication, uh, people doing their own thing, um, and so it's just. Uh, and I probably, I probably, we don't know a great deal which went on, and uh, material is still arriving and still arising from the Northern Ireland troubles, and a lot of this material would be covered by national interest and be embargoed. Some would have been destroyed. Some will be put away for fifty or a hundred years. But now we're having a bit of distance and people are writing their memoirs. There are the uh, investigations of the Ombudsman's uh, office. Uh, people are giving interviews. And it's still bubbling. Still, things still happen over there. Police officers have been killed in recent years, rioting, um, uh, in threats and intimidation. So it hasn't really gone away. And we're learning more and more all the time about what really went on. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go back to the the seventies, and um, one of the the major events which sort of turned public opinion around, which is uh, Black Sunday. The old U two, yeah. I believe, wrote a song about that one. Bloody Sunday, yeah. sorry, Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday um, yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to just give us a bit of background to what actually happened? And it's only recently. The inquiry's only recently finished, and uh, the Prime Minister gave an apology. That's correct. Uh, I think I think this is a very important uh, um, point. 
you put an army in charge of Lord order in a very uncertain situation. And what do armies do? They look for military solutions. So they tend to go for confrontations. They like victories. They like to show their strength. And this was a peaceful civil rights demonstration in Derry in 1972, where I think one of the most disastrous decisions ever taken in Northern Ireland was made, and that was to put in the paratroopers, who are a act, you know, a proactive, aggressive kind of unit, who are totally unfitted for policing in what is essentially a kind of civil unrest situation. And the but the point is, of course, that from the military point of view, every such demonstration had the potential to have IRA backing, to have Republican military uh, military backing, and might always turn nasty. So it's clear that there was an aggressive effort to move in, arrest, and so on. The paratroopers who were at the front of this perceived themselves to be under fire and shot dead 14 unarmed British citizens. Now, that in itself was pretty damning about the failure of the military to cope with the situation. But it gets even worse, which takes me into the kind of spin on state deviancy. The government sets up an inquiry called the Widgery Inquiry, which is a complete whitewash. And not only is it a complete whitewash, but we have minutes of a meeting in which the prime minister of the time is taking this very high legal person, the second highest legal person in the British you know, judicial apparatus, and basically telling him, look, Widgery, we're in a propaganda war. So I think... For many, many people, this was a turning point that you could not trust the British state. And I think it just took, you know, the next 20 odd years for the British state to dig itself out of that hole. As you said, there's recently been a major inquiry, uh, exonerated all the people who were killed. They were not armed. They were not being aggressive. They were running away in many cases, shot in the back, shot on the ground, shot multiple times, which is which happens when armies uh, get involved in these situations. Um, and the Prime Minister gave a very fulsome apology to uh, all the families uh, and uh, to the people of Derry. And I think that's a turning point. Mm. Um, it's very strange when you put a group of people who are trained under modern training to, to overcome their you know, reluctance to kill people. And I think it's called train fire, this training system they use, yeah. where they're yeah. actually automated shooting machines in yeah. a sense. That's what they're trained to do. Yeah. And then you put Absolutely. them in charge, not only put them in charge of crowd control, but put them in charge of crowd control with 303 rifles. Is a, yeah. <laughs> it seems a bit bizarre from a crowd control peaceful demonstration um, point yeah, of view. I, well, there's, there's, you know, there are another number of ways of, of kind of looking at this. I mean, if, if, if you have a very sort of negative point of view, you say this is typical, you know, the state uh, overreacts. But if you put it, if you ask the military, what they would probably say was, you know, we're sent over to Northern Ireland, we're a very modern army, you know, we're trained for a technological uh, sort of warfare, uh, 
we're not trained for this. We knew nothing about Northern Ireland, and we fell back on uh, on our sort of institutional memory of, say, Cyprus. You know, where there was a defined mm-hmm. enemy. Uh, it was a counterinsurgency. And you picked them up. You turned them around. Turned them into informants. And if you got them in a situation, uh, you blew them away. I mean, where it was fairly kind of simple. And I think that that was their model that they were working. You've got to understand, we're talking about this small part of Great Britain where in one military operation, one military operation to search uh, the Republican areas, they mobilized 30,000, you know, security forces, you know, with armored units. I mean, it was just absolutely overkill. Mm. You know, trying to As you say, in a small a, community. Yeah, it's trying to use a military uh, apparatus to solve a political problem, and that never works. Never mm. works. Was this Operation Motorman that you're talking about? Is that the yes, operation? that's correct, Motorman. Yeah, right, right. And, um, you know, uh, helicopters, uh, landing landing troops from from landing craft, uh, you name it. I mean, the British Army mobilised itself at great strength. And when you do that, what they do is they kick down doors, they tr- they trash houses, they drag people around. I mean, this is destroying any kind of you know uh, trust or confidence in the British state. Uh, one of the major points of the book, drawing on a lot of other material, is how all these kind of operations are counterproductive. Yes. And all I've got friends. Is... Sorry, go on. Yes. Go ahead. Um, I've got friends and relatives who've been to Afghanistan and they'll tell you very similar stories about relationships with local people in Afghanistan after carrying out very similar operations in small villages. Yeah, I mean, armies are very crude uh, kind of instruments. And when you talk to senior people, they'll say we were restrained uh, compared to other units. You know, we were confused. We didn't know. We learned quickly. And that may be the case, but it's still there's always collateral damage. And, you know, they're always going to shoot the wrong people. They're going to drop a bomb on the wrong village. They're going to drop a bomb on a on a, on a wedding uh, party. I mean, this is what happens when you use, you know, heavy military uh, apparatus in, in essentially kind of civil war or insurgency conflict situations. Mm. And, and then they upgraded. Um, sorry. Yeah. They upgraded then to the SAS. Well... I think what I'm saying is that the, the British Army being put in control of law and order realized after 1972 the deep point, you know, with, uh, with Bloody Sunday that they were facing an abyss. And they were essentially doing the policing of Northern Ireland. Uh, you've got to understand if a police unit went out, let's say four men, four police officers, they would be surrounded by, by a, a unit of, 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 uh, of soldiers, maybe 14, 15 soldiers. There'd be 14, 15 soldiers in backup, and there'd be a helicopter watching them. So this is an, you know, an almost absurd kind of situation to think this is happening in, in, in the British Isles. But at that level, I think the police, the army learned very quickly to be restrained. You know, it was there for, for law and order. What we're talking about are the you know, counterinsurgency units which work with intelligence, so they would set up uh, effectively ambushes. They would know what was going on. They would be there in large numbers. It would use the 
special forces like the SAS that you mentioned. Uh, the Army had another uh, counterinsurgency unit. The RUC had, had uh, its own counterinsurgency units. And effectively, the name of the game is, to, is you know, given British law, uh, you just can't go. It's not the battlefield. You do not have the immunity of the battlefield uh, under international law if it was a declared war, so you can't just go and shoot people. So effectively, you use intelligence to draw uh, the insurgents into an ambush situation, you then construct a reason for firing. So they made a sudden movement, uh, they picked up a gun, uh, they swerved or they, they swerved quickly around in the car, whatever. You'd find some excuse, then uh, there'd be multiple shooting. Um, typical army shooting is it's not to kill, it's to eliminate. I mean, you're talking about 12, 16, 23, 23 bullets fired at an individual. Mm. Then, as I said before, that area would be uh, um, um, cut off from uh, any kind of CID or pathology. The pathologist would have to do it from photographs of the scene. So you then doctor your story to say that you had no other alternative uh, to shoot. Uh, some of these soldiers from Bloody Sunday who were in the recent inquiry were still insisting that they had been shot at against all the evidence so people can even convince themselves that what they say, which is untrue, is true. Um, so uh, effectively, you've got state, you know, I'm not trying to argue that the impetus for this, the encouragement from this is coming from above top in Whitehall in London would never ever show footprints in the sand that they were directly uh, accountable. But they're putting these units under pressure. They take the initiative. They seek the ambush. They push the boundary of violence and then essentially concoct uh, stories. And there's no real effective accountability system to challenge that. Mm. And even in the softer measures, like working with um, the grasses, the super grasses as well, there was a lot of unethical and sometimes fatal consequences of the way that was conducted. Well, as I said uh, earlier, a great deal is beginning to come out. Um, for example, no doubt about it that people who were arrested and became informants or, as you say, supergrasses who would perhaps give information about 30 or 40 or 50 uh, IRA um, uh, insurgents were physically intimidated. And the British state has been taken to the European Court of Human Rights, which has passed you know, statements about this as being not quite torture, but certainly uh, against you know, human rights law. So there was a, a great deal of intimidation, a great deal of misusing informants, you know, threatening them, intimidating them, uh, getting them into dangerous situations. Uh, some of them who are, so, I mean, and now police officers are coming out and saying, well, of course, you know, we, we beat, beat up people. Of course, we intimidated people because, and this goes back to my point about organizational deviance and not bad apples, because the pressure was on from senior officers to get the information 
to get back at the IRA to feed the counterinsurgency movement. So there's absolutely no doubt that a whole bag of dirty tricks went on uh, at different times and in different segments of the, of the security services. And a lot of that, particularly getting into not just the, I think we know a little bit about the army, a little bit about the uh, uh, the police, the Royal Arsenal Discovery, and their deviance, but probably what's missing is the security services, which is just mm. covered by national interests and embargoes and what they got up to. No doubt that people were going across the border into uh, Southern Ireland, which effectively is, is a sovereign state, so uh, you know, you're you're operating outside of your uh, of your own um, uh, legitimacy kind of structure, that they were down there doing all sorts of murky things. And we still don't know a great deal about it. Mm-hmm. And then um, you also mentioned in one of your chapters about how in order to protect their sources within the IRA, their undercover agents, they would actually allow innocent people to be harmed other, uh, rather than um, upset yeah. their yeah. source of supply of information. Yeah. I mean, this is, this, this is counterinsurgency, but also in organized crime. You know, if you have a, what's called an active informant, then you have them to allow them to commit a crime. And the higher they get in the organization, the more implicated they become. Um, and the information that we have is that the IRA, that's the provisional IRA, was deeply, deeply uh, infiltrated by people working for the British security services, that to protect some of them, even probably British agents were murdered. Um, and that is the kind of uh, you know, rough stuff that you get into when you start using you know, high-grade active informants, whether it's in organized crime or whether it's in, uh, in counterinsurgency. Mm. And it can be excused on the basis of competing values, so to speak. So they're, they're devaluing the people, members of the public over the quality of the information that they're getting in their own. Well, their, their, their particular job is placed above uh, the lives of other people. Yes, I think I think that if you look at some of the um, some of the academic work on, say, counterinsurgency and intelligence movements, uh, Jean Paul Brodeur, for example, in in Canada on on the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, looking at the you know Free uh, Quebec movement and so on, they always always push the boundaries. They effectively uh, break the law, but what covers them is national interest. Yeah. Once you put national interest in, you've got to cover, you've got a rationalization. So mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that went on was cynical, absolutely you know, cynical. It was you know, using people, it was uh, making people expendable. Uh, but if you work in that area, that's, that's the name of the game. Yeah. And you can yep. justify it because you're being covered by the state. Yep. And it's a form of noble cause corruption. Uh, yeah, maybe you need another conceptual vocabulary, uh, <laughs> uh, in a way, some other word. As I, I can't think of it off, off, off the top of my head, but I think, I think noble cause is a bit too nice for what it really is. 
Yes, probably, probably. But it, it, it's in the cause of the state because once you say that, uh, you know, you can break into property, you can steal people's uh, documents, you can hack into their computers, you can defame them, you can put out black propaganda, uh, you can manipulate uh, informants. Uh, one example, for example, one, one example was uh, they had a very, very uh, valuable, useful informant. This is an IRA person or Republican sympathizer. They've turned under interrogation. Interrogation is going to work for them. And in fact, uh, he wanted to get out and he wanted to emigrate to Australia. Hmm. And he applied for all the, you know, the papers. And special branch got to uh, undermine his efforts because he was so useful to them. So they prevented him going to Australia. But then, of course, he gets killed. I mean, yes. this is kind of the ultimate. They're expendable, you know, because mm. the the campaign, people get obsessed. They get obsessed with the campaign. That's their own reality. And the rules, the real, you know, the, the formal rules don't apply anymore. You're in a dirty war. There are dirty rules. And you bend them, and then you cover up, and you try and stay out. Uh, there were 70, uh, 70 um, suicides in the Royal Ulster Constabulary during the Troubles. I think a lot of people had troubles with their conscience. Uh, they were in terrible moral dilemmas. They were faced with uh, awful kind of situations. 300 police officers were murdered, were killed during the campaign. So we're getting to pretty rough stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, then the question is, what do you do about it? Um, is there a mechanism that can short circuit this sort of self-reinforcing culture of deviance? Well, uh, as I as I tell my students that you know, criminology and criminal justice is a very depressive science because we don't <laughs> have much good news. We haven't got much good news to tell. It's all pretty depressing kind of stuff. And when you get to this level, the question is, you know, do states learn? Uh, I mean, the mm. state is kind of abstract. It's the it's the government and it's the officials who uh, sort of embody it. And time and time again, when the state is threatened, it tends to go uh, into overreaction. And there's two reasons. I mean, one reason is, let's say, Northern Ireland the British state was facing a 30-year campaign by a very smart group of uh, terrorists who were able to put bombs you know, into the parliament to building and blow up a member of parliament. Mm. They almost blow up the, blew up the government at, at a conference in Brighton when they put a, uh, a bomb in the hotel about three weeks before, a very sophisticated bomb. Um, so on the one hand, they have to react, but what they tend to do is push the boundaries. Yes. And push the boundaries into what's illegal. Look at almost, you know, and the really bad stuff would be, say, you know, some of the South American uh, regimes against, uh, you know, left-wing guerrillas. It would be the apartheid regime in South Africa and what they did, you know, and that all came out in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Uh, mm. Algeria, the French in Algeria, most of the colonial wars the British were in, there's now, now more information coming out about the repression by British forces in Kenya and people who suffered from that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, trying to get compensation in the British courts. So there's an awful lot coming out about the excesses of the British state in colonial situations. 
And I think all states do it. And in a way, what some of the uh, practitioners that I've met in Northern Ireland say, well, yeah, we did do it, but we weren't as bad as the others. I mean, <laughs> it's a question of scale. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll cough, we'll cough to some of it. But if we'd really gone to town, it would have been much, much worse. That so we're the, the nice version of the bad copper. Ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. You know, as you say, you can often think you're in a country where everything's nice and safe, and now in Australia, then you can start to go back in history. Not that far ago, uh, long ago, when you start to look at the colonial policing system here and the indigenous population, and you end up yeah. getting massive excesses and cover-ups yeah. of slaughter, and it, it is a fairly universal archetype, I suppose, of this type of uh, government response to people who disagree with their um, intentions. Yeah. Well, on, on the one hand, of course, politicians are going to cover up because of their careers, their reputations. But in a sense, when they think they're working for the state on behalf of the state, then it's kind of this, you know, this, the reputation of the state. And mm. they, they go to almost almost sort of no lengths to, to, uh, to sort of cover up. And, you know, part of the book is also about, you know, external inquiries. It's about whistleblowers. Mm. And one whistleblower, just to give you a quick example, one whistleblower who worked for military intelligence uh, decided that effectively what military intelligence was doing, it was feeding, because this is one point we haven't made so made mm. tonight, there was also Protestant paramilitaries whose yes. violence was focused on the Republicans, which almost never came onto the radar of the police or the military. So effectively, they were being allowed, you know, a free hand. And what you saw was military intelligence feeding information to the Protestant paramilitaries to kill, uh, you know, Republican sympathizers or IRA activists. And he, at a certain moment, felt that he could not go on with his conscience became a whistleblower, started writing articles about him. Then, under, under a pseudonym, then his house is broken into, his manuscript is stolen, he's prosecuted on the Official Secrets Act in camera, so the court case is in mm. secret. The only piece of evidence which is produced is the documents which the security service have stolen. So, I mean, this <laughs> is what happens. Uh, this is how murky and 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 uh, you know dirty it gets when the state when you oppose the state the state crushes you. Yes. By the way, there's just one other thing I must tell just to get into when we talk about you know how the levels of kind of deviance. Uh, you can talk about the soldiers, you know, the SAS units, but at a much higher level, I think this is the interesting part: the how the state is implicated and there was a, a, a case in a little town called Claudie where an IRA activist walked into a shop planted a bomb it exploded and killed nine people in killing an eight-year-old girl now the information turned out that he was a Catholic priest mm. and in that period early 1970s it was dynamite if you'd exposed a Catholic priest as being in charge of an IRA unit and being active in planting a bomb. The Protestants would have said, right, that proves everything. Uh, the Catholic yeah. Church is involved. 
and the Catholics would have said this is discrimination. So uh, political dynamite. So what you see is the chief of the police takes it to the Home Secretary in Whitehall in London, who gets in touch with the Catholic primate of all Ireland, and they decide to move him across the border to Ireland where he lived until he died some years back. So yeah. this is what I'm trying to get into, the levels of deviance, and you get higher and higher. And here you have this chief of police, the primate of all Ireland, you know, Catholic uh, mm. uh, um, bishop, I think, or archbishop, and the Home Secretary, basically colluding in covering up a murder. Mm. So, you know, in the end, nothing surprises you anymore about what goes on in these situations. Mm. With very little... Collusion, yep. you know, direct collusion going to the top of government. Yep, yep. And the politicians will excuse it. On, as you say, you know, I never said that anyone should do that. Um, I never uh, gave Edward, any orders. Yeah, all the people involved there, the ICG, Thumb Secretary, Primate of Ireland, all dead. So uh, they, they can't give their versions. But I think the point is uh, perhaps taking it to a little bit of another area, you know, the psychology of this. And in you perhaps, uh, you know, aware of the literature on, on kind of denial and what's known as the coveries of motive. And mm. people would say, well, I had to do it. Uh, I was forced to do it uh, by superiors. Uh, they deserved it. Uh, what do you expect? How can we fight with our hands behind our back? They've killed 300 of our police officers. We have to retaliate. So people always have the ability to you know, to rationalize and justify what they're doing. And I think once you give them you know, national interest and that you're effectively you know, covered by by immunity, then you are generating and creating uh, the deviance. And then, of course, you deny any kind of direct causal link between what you uh, argued, let's say, in Whitehall, demanding extra action, and saying, "Why, well, you know, we never ever anticipated that it would take this um, uh, illegal uh, kind of path." So there's deniability at the top, and rationalizations, and the mm. coveries of motive uh, down below. Mm. How far do you think it could have gone? I mean, if it was still at the same levels it was during, say, the early 90s when there was a lot of bombings um, yeah. in London, uh, do you think it could have got to the levels of, like, drones and things like that? You know, it's operalized. We need to raise the levels. We need to do more. We're obviously not succeeding. Therefore, we can excuse greater powers and greater uh, weaponry. Yeah, no, I th no, I think I think perhaps not quite that, but I think the abyss, what everyone saw as the abyss, and why they had to dig themselves out after 1972 and Bloody Sunday and so on, was an all-out civil war, mm. with, where the Protestants and Catholics, you know, the Republicans and Nationalists, effectively went to war together, and where the RUC would have joined, you know, or a lot of the RUC would have joined the um, the Protestant paramilitaries, and because you know, the IUC was essentially a Protestant uh, institution, and that the British Army would have been stuck in the middle. I mean, yes. this was the doom scenario. Yeah. But if you, I think that if you, um, in a, just a bit, of, sort of react a little bit to what you said. In a, in a way, when you look at it, it's all pretty primitive. Mm. A lot of the stuff. Um, 
probably by the end of the 30-year cycle, they would be into all the technology of you know, tapping telephones, of uh, surveillance. But probably um, what you're talking about is, is a little bit more contemporary about the drones and, and so on, which is, is more, I think, of the last kind of decade. But who knows what they would have done if it had the army had to face, uh, you know, effectively a full civil war within within the British Isles. Yeah, and that I think that's why. I, I mean, one of the cynical kind of parts of this is probably everybody realised, you know, the army, uh, the IRA, uh, the British government, the Irish government realised by about 1975 that nobody was going to come out of this with a victory. The IRA could never win against the British Army. The British Army could never win against insurgents. I mean, uh, and so it's stalemate. Yes. So you've got the next 20 years of people still dying and being killed and assassinated and blown up and all this stuff, trying yeah. to get a political solution. It's, it's horrible, really, to think mm. of the number of, sort of deaths that took place, the nasty stuff which took place, because the government simply could not negotiate a solution because yeah. they would have to admit that the IRA was legitimate, they had legitimate political interests, and given the climate of the time, you know, the Conservatives and Margaret Thatcher in power, given that the IRA tried to blow up Margaret Thatcher in her hotel and almost succeeded, uh, there was stalemate. Yeah. Uh, I, took I recent, all, yeah I, all those years to dig themselves out. I recently read. But, um, but sorry, just to just to finish yeah. what what you're implying, I suspect that if the conflict had gone much longer, they would have moved into the kind of technology which is now available uh, mm. and used it. Because one of the features of the of the um, uh, um, of the conflict is you don't want your own people to get killed. So rather than getting the army in the front, they started to use the paramilitaries uh, mm. as a sort of proxy. Uh, uh, special forces to to shoot and murder and intimidate and torture uh, Catholics and, and Republicans, and probably if it escalated, they would have used anything that was available to them. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say I recently read um, Tony Blair's autobiography, and he does a chapter on the negotiations, the final negotiations, because yeah. they've been going on for quite some time. And yeah. you can hear in his story, at least, the, the exhaustion of all the parties, as you were saying. That yes. The anger was still there on each side, but they just couldn't go any further. They, they had to stop, effectively. In some, yes. In some strange way, I mean, if you go back to all the various things that happened in, the, say, 200 years leading up to the Troubles, it's strange. I don't think the English ever understood the Irish. Mm. Nearly every politician who was sent there said, I don't understand this place. Uh, I can't cope. They're mm. unreliable. Uh, you know, I, if I talk to a Protestant, he says one thing. Talk to a Catholic, he says another thing. They're lovely people. They're nice people. They're hospitable. They're great, you know. Tea, buns, scones. And they're all killing each other, you know. Um, yeah. So some kind of exasperation there. And, you know, politics was pretty polarized. Um mm. And it still is. Uh, there's still uh, instance uh, going on. But I think it was kind of important that the Queen went to Southern Ireland um, about a year back. And I think, you know, no British sovereign had been to Southern Ireland uh, for about a, a 
I think, from well before the independence. I think that was very important. And she recently visited Northern Ireland, where she shook hands with Martin McGuinness, who is now a politician, but mm. was a leading member of the IRA and almost certainly was involved in you know, actions which have led to the death of people. So there is, on the one hand, this sort of strong move towards reconciliation. But under the surface, I think there's still a lot sort of bubbling there. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, thank you um, very much for all the time you've spent talking to me today. But uh, we have a traditional final question that the whole New Books Network, all the different channels tend to use, and that is um, if you could just tell us briefly what you're working on now. What's the next thing we can expect from Morris Punch? Well, I'm not sure. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm a little bit exhausted because I did the, I did three books in like three years. You know, I did a book mm. on police corruption. I did a book on police use of force. I did um, the the book on Northern Ireland, and you know, I call them my Millennium uh, trilogy, and I'm yeah. hoping for the same kind of sales. You know, that the Millennium trilogy <laughs> Good luck. got. Uh, you know, films, television, and so on, <laughs> for all the money rolling in. But uh, no, I'm not quite sure what to do next. But the troubles got—I got very into the troubles. You know, my Irish background, and it's fascinating stuff. And what you're seeing at the moment is, you know, a very strong kind of reconciliation uh, movement. There hasn't been a Truth and Reconciliation Committee in Northern Ireland, but a lot of groups are trying to work towards much more sort of peaceful solutions. And people who were opponents at the time, uh, people who were, say, in the British Army, people who were in the IRA, are now working together. You know, often, I mean, the Brighton bomber, you know, who tried to blow up uh, the the British um, uh, cabinet in the in the hotel in Brighton at the conference, you know, he goes on to the kind of peace circuit, uh, you know, arguing against violence. So although there's this you know, murky stuff going on under the surface. There's a very strong kind of reconciliation peace movement uh, in Southern Ireland, Northern Ireland, and now in Great Britain. And I thought that might be interesting to to look at uh, from the point of view of how do you recover from a major conflict situation which has split a society for, you know, 30 years. So if I can gear myself up and get, um, you know, the energy levels going, I think that might be my, my next book. Oh, that'll be good, but take your time and, as you say, pace <laughs> yourself a bit. <laughs> I will. Okay. All right, Errol. Thank you very much. You have been listening to New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime and my interview with Morris Punch about his new book, State Violence, Collusion and the Troubles. Thank you for listening.